Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element. One of the things that we all know we need to drink more water, one of the things about research is that it's very clear about how to get people to drink more water, make it taste good. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I If I'm just left with plain old boring water, I don't really drink any. And we just, you and I both just resort to drinking only coffee all day long. If you only dropped element into your morning routine, let's say, forget about the electrolytes, forget about any other aspect of why you, element is awesome. But if you just got up in the morning and added salt to your water and some lemon... You'd already be winning at yeah, life. Yeah, because you're hypohydrated. Not dehydrated, hypohydrated, right? Dehydration is like clinical. You're like, you're dead. Hypohydrated. You've been not drinking all night long. And a lot of times the brain fog you feel is because you're not hydrated. And that first dose of element in the morning, wake up, pound an element in a big glass of huge water, and you will feel better. And importantly, it tastes so oh, good. We you actually that? will drink your entire water bottle or glass of water. We're seeing our teenage daughters kill the element. And that is pretty amazing. They're like, hey, can we have some more of that element? Yeah, it's pretty special. It tastes so good. If you want to get some element, right now you can order a sample pack for just the price of shipping, which is $5 in the U.S. Their sample packs include eight packets, so you can try each of their eight flavors. Go to the readystate.com slash free element. That's free L-M-N-T to check it out. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding. But in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre and post workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. And best of all, right now you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks. So you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, Juliet and I are thrilled to introduce you to a good friend and highly influential person in our lives, Brett Bartholomew. I've known Brett for a long time, and you'll see that uh, we have collaborated and sort of been running in the same circles for a minute. He is an incredible speaker, a performance coach and consultant, best-selling author, and founder of Art of Coaching. Brett's experience includes working with members of Fortune 500 companies, special forces, sport organizations, and a ton of athletes. What you'll see is that Brett has come out of strength conditioning, but his message and thinking transcends just our kind of our classic sports performance environment. He self-published a best-selling book called Conscious Coaching, The Art and Science of Building Buy-In, which is just the only, the building block of how do we interact and what is the limiting factor for us to change, change behavior and sort of relate to one another. Taken together, Brett has coached a diverse range of athletes from across 23 sports at levels ranging from youth athletes to Olympians. He supported Super Bowl champions, World Series champions. He is a savage. He's currently conducting his doctoral research focused on the role of power dynamics, persuasion, and optimizing change management within organizations at the University of Central Lancashire. Please enjoy our wild and wild-ranging conversation with Brett. Brett, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. We are very excited to have you. Juliet, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And you know, what's also fun is I was just on your podcast. And so it's nice to have the tables turned and get to ask you some questions, especially because I think on the podcast, we learned we have 500,000 things in common. So I'm really looking forward to chatting. And let me just jump in right here and say, this happens to me a lot. I have talented, amazing friends who I interact personally and professionally. Then they get to know you and I get dropped. (laughs) 
<laughs> dropped. I sent you a carrier pigeon the other day. It's just, oh, okay. Yeah, he's like, we're still friends. Well, and it turns bro. out that once once people actually get to know Juliet, then they were like, oh, uh, Kelly was just like a vector. I was like a host. And that's totally fine. I understand. You're cooler. I don't know. I don't know. People really love you, baby. Well, let's be honest. Be- okay, so Brett, I would like to really get into all the amazing stuff you're doing professionally, but to the extent that many in our audience aren't familiar with who you are as a person, and I'm going to ask what Kelly will probably find to be a really annoying question, but tell us a little bit about your background before the art of coaching, which is how we all know you best. Sure. Yeah. Succinctly, I was a strength coach for 15 years, predominantly working in professional sport and with military. Also worked in the collegiate side as well. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and through nearly losing my life at a young age, got very much into psychology, got very much into the human body, got very much into understanding power dynamics and just why we do the quirky things that we do. And that led to just kind of very superficial interest in coaching at the time, because I'm 18 at that moment. Ended up getting my master's degree with the focus on motor learning and cueing, which took me down this whole rabbit hole even further regarding the impact of communication in what we do. And uh, now I'm getting my doctorate in power dynamics related based communication. So really the most significant part of my background that set my path was being hospitalized for a year of my life and just having this fascination about the body and social dynamics and what have you. And so I wrote a book in 2016 to fill a gap to kind of what you and Kelly have done for movement and so many other things I've been trying to do for communication and social interaction. I don't really like the term soft skills, so I'll just call them human skills. And thankfully, that book started to cross over with more corporations and tech and finance and what have you. And that led to me creating the company that my wife and I have now, The Art of Coaching. And the context of coaching is synonymous with leadership, right? This idea that anytime you're trying to orchestrate or guide or lead people in any kind of manner, that's essentially what you're doing. But we've just always been really tired of kind of this one-size-fits-all leadership rah-rah mantra out there because at times I needed it in my life when I needed, needed real advice of how to deal with Machiavellian individuals or people that didn't always want the best for you. Believe it or not, just learning how to win friends and influence people didn't always help. <laughs> well, I have to go way back at the beginning of that. And can you tell us more about, because I think when you were hospitalized for a year, you almost died. Yeah. And can you tell us what happened and what was the circumstance? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and when you frame this up in the context of uh, there's a great research article that talks about in 2015 alone, nearly $12 billion uh, was lost due to poor communication in the healthcare system. And that was definitely something witnessed by me. So growing up, I played sports my entire life. And, you know, I just transferred to a new high school. My parents were splitting up when I was, I was probably about 14, 15 years old. A lot of my close friends, people that were in my predominant social circle, almost my entire life started getting into drugs. Now, I don't know if your audience can see me or not, and and you can't always judge a book by its cover, but I'm not really into meth or coke. And this is a lot of things that friends of mine at the time started to get into. And so when the social circle started to erode, I was trying to find other outlets. And going home at the time wasn't a lot of fun because my parents were kind of arguing about joint custody. To give you context, I ended up staying with mom Monday, Wednesday, Friday, dad, Tuesday, Thursday, weekends would switch off. I think a lot of that is what led to my uh, luggage fetish now because I'm always trying to figure out (laughs) what do I need to take with me from mom's? I'm going to have a heart attack if I don't get all my toys. Basically, I filled that gap with just working out and training for sport. I mean, I'd work out after school. After dinner, I'd go to the local wellness center. At night, I would uh, do push-ups and sit-ups ad nauseum. I channeled a lot of what I know now is anxious energy into training. It helped clear my head. Little did I know that became a drug of its own. I started really focusing on the things that I could control, almost like what we saw during COVID, right? People hoarded toilet paper because of this zero risk bias. It's the lowest thing on the totem pole they can control. Well, for me as a teenager at that time, you know, that was diet and exercise. And there wasn't a lot of great resources. This was around the time that low fat and low carb were both in vogue. So I did like any great extremist, both. And so here I am, you know, 15 years old, my basal metabolic rate, right, is probably in the high, you know, the low 2000s or at least high, let's say 1800. But I'm eating egg beaters, fat-free craft singles and salads, you know, throughout the day. Killing it. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, it's not that I ever thought like, oh my God, I'm fat or whatever. It's just, I was trying to be this perfect individual and trying to live up to whatever the standard was that I read about was lean, shredded, ripped and what have you. And I didn't know anything. 
man, anybody that's dealt with any kind of depression or sometimes just anxiety-based melancholy, which I was definitely going through at that time, knows that you just start to become this machine. It's not like I even looked in the mirror and realized this stuff, but I went from, I was only 130 pounds normally at that age, and I ended up getting down to about 93 at my lowest. And so one day I was running around the school, blacked out. Long story short, went to a doctor. He found that, hey, you know, basically... If this kid's not hospitalized, his heart, kidney, and liver are just going to go kaput. I mean, my resting heart rate was in the high 30s, low 40s, and that wasn't a good thing. So I kind of did some time in some inpatient or out-of-patient programs. And when I say one-size-fits-all, Juliet, like a lot of this stuff was, here I was the only guy sitting in these, what they would call like a day room, and you'd have to talk about food and are you scared of being fat and all this stuff. And and if I said, well, no, I'm kind of dealing with another scenario, they'd say, well, you're in denial. And then they'd recommend to a psychiatrist that you had to see that you just get dumped with, you know, antidepressants, right? It's almost like that medical model and just inject in size, um, except people really love labels in medical world as well. And so that didn't work for me. Got put in an inpatient program where the day-to-day is you wake up at about 5 a.m., your blood's drawn, you strip naked, you're put in a gown, you're weighed. When we talk about one size fits all, literally your BMI is what determines you know, everything else in your your care. And and I think we all know the history of the BMI, but then you're not allowed to really choose anything that you eat. It's based off that diabetic exchange system where you need so many breads and fats and this and that. And about six of the eight hours a day you spend is in this day room with plexiglass window. So imagine Kelly's there and Kelly's fidgeting, right? He'd get a a knock on the window as a warning. If you stood up and you just started pacing because you had been sitting all day, you'd get another warning if you were chewing gum or doing anything that could contribute to non-exercise thermogenesis, you would get a warning. After three warnings, you were either fed a boost, some other kind of meal replacement, or you would be fed intravenously. So, you know, your day is filled with that. You can't watch certain movies, anything, what have you. If you go to the bathroom, they have to accompany you. Everything's measured, everything, everything. You can't exercise. And so, you know, that was my life for a year. And, And not to mention the fact that the day that I left, you know, there was a nurse there and, and, there was a lot of power dynamics there. They weren't so much worried about the patients as much as they were just, you know, normal day-to-day gossip. And I'm standing there with both of my parents walking out of there. And this 46-year-old nurse uh, who I call Renee basically said, hey, you'll be back. And so I just knew like through my experience there, and I, and I don't want to waste anybody's time, but so many other things that happened there, like that's not okay. There were people in that hospital that died because they didn't get the treatment they needed. There's a woman who is 60 some odd years old. Her husband cheated on her, developed an eating disorder, you know, to deal with some of those things. There's a junior Olympic wrestler who, who lost a match and his father beat him and he used food and, and exercise as a control for that. And so it was my first real foray into, and we see the same thing with movement function in many ways, is there's always such a more complex underlying issue. And with human beings, that is especially the case. It is the ultimate in complexity. Relationships are the ultimate in complexity. And I wanted to figure that out. And that's what took me into coaching. Okay, I'm sure Kelly has a question, but I just have a comment. And when I'm listening to that story, I'm like, okay, I'm looking at your age and I'm thinking this must have been like the 90s. And it feels like we're talking about like some crazy clinic in like 1898. (laughs) I mean, that's an insane story. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I was 14 at the time. I'm 35 now. So, you know, close, right? Early 2000s. But like, it was very much like, Ignaz Semmelweis, right? The guy that's the father of human hand hygiene. Guy ended up kind of saying, hey, we're not doing this. We're not sterilizing appropriately. We might be cross-contaminating and killing people. They had him committed to an insane asylum, gets beat by the guards, dies of septicemia. And so, you know, yes, it it was crazy in the sense that, and if you look up this hospital to this day, I was showing my colleague, Ali Kirshner, this, you still have people that are enduring this kind of treatment. And, And it's just what you see. You see a lazy model of we can't understand people or we don't have the time to. So let's use drugs. Let's use extreme treatment plans. Let's use this. And if they don't fit this model or it doesn't work, well, it's their fault. They were non-compliant. They were non-compliant. And just because my story didn't fit the rest of them, you know, that's how I was labeled. And by and large, that's how you were treated. When I first met Brett, you know, I've been following you. I loved what you were talking about. I respected you as a strength and conditioning coach and knew you professionally in that realm. The first time I think we met, was that Indiana? Is that where we were? Would have been Indiana, yep. And I saw you speak, and then you actually had a proof copy of Art of Coaching. The galley copy, very and first one. The very first one. And for some reason, I said, look over there. There's a Snickers. And you were like, what's that? Oh, And I stole it. You gave me your galley copy, and I started reading it 
on the way home. And it was the first time I'd ever heard you talk about this. And you'd written this story down as the genesis of understanding why you were so passionate about communicating and about this inner human dynamic. And I felt like, oh, like so many pieces dropped into place for me. And I was really just a blown away by the, that piece, knowing how strong you are and robust you are and what a talented coach you are. But also it for me, it really gave me leverage to understand exactly the whole in the world. I've had a ton of communi formal communication training as a physical therapist. And we had to, I had to record myself interviewing people, listen back. I had to videotape those things. I had to really watch and be very meta about my interactions. And of course, my mother's a psychologist too. But you were the first person to take this on legitimately in our field, I feel like, which is the whole field is about behavior change, behavior modification, and interpersonal relationships. And I just want to thank you for putting this out and being vulnerable in that book. When I read it on the way home, I think I was like live tweeting you like, oh my God, oh my, what? And then what? And then I I, had sl I read the whole book on the, the flight home from Indiana. No, well, and I appreciated that. You were one of the ones that, you know, really gave it a chance, right? In terms of you think globally, you and Juliet both do. I think the initial reaction from the book was aligned with almost that Semmelweis effect of there were people that were like, oh, now this person's talking about communication. Is that going to take away from our market share in training? And I have to remind you, like, I have Mexican food tonight and eat Italian tomorrow, right? Like me saying, hey, there's this thing that's incredibly complex that people have maybe touched on before, but not in a super detailed way that we need to take another look at because we are seeing social atrophy, which we define at Art of Coaching as like, this degradation of context, adept social skills and communication abilities yeah. due to a lack of either interactive frequency, which we've seen during COVID, or for people that get in the routinized kind of aspect of their job, a lack of depth and breadth and refinement. I mean, taking out the trash is a task. Social interaction is a skill. But I remember somebody one time tweeting, hey, I communicate every day. Why do I need a book to tell me how to do this? And I said, well, hey, I wake up married to my wife every day. I kind of need to keep working on my marriage. And just because it's not tactical, which is like what our field is so used to, I'm going to go and get this certification. I'm going to learn how to use this new tool or I have this new piece of sports science. Therefore, that is a skill and a point of differentiation. I mean, communication, just because you can't touch. I mean, this is stuff that gets people killed. It starts wars, it ends marriages, or it creates beautiful opportunities. It's just amazing how we look at it and take it for granted. And you didn't do that. One of the things that Juliet and I believe strongly in is that we have always seen sport as a test kitchen as a teaching hospital. And I, I would actually argue, I was just on a podcast or a, a presentation for a bunch of physical therapists yesterday, kind of talking about the sort of performance side of physical therapy. And they were asking like, should physios be coaches? And I said, yes, because otherwise you don't know what it takes to actually make a robust person. You're not talking about sleep and motivation and safety and drive and all of the components, the messy psycho-emotional components of working with humans. And I feel like almost, Juliet and I feel almost every day that the reason we are good at our jobs is we came out of a physical tradition where we had to learn to communicate and rely on each other and be vulnerable. And that is completely anathema to what we see traditionally in this kind of fitnessing, raw, raw strength conditioning community. I mean, you, you, I'm not surprised you've made the jump now from Oh, coaching, that's cute. You know, you know getting a, an athlete prepared to play in the NFL or an MMA to, wow, we have we can apply the same sets of tools that you've learned in this field towards the rest of society. And really making that jump is the promise of sports and science. Well, and you see, to that point, you see this kind of follow the leader thing happening where when we started doing this for other corporations and things like that, then more people wanted to take a second look in strength and conditioning and performance. Same thing when we use improv and situational role-playing at our workshops now, you know, we show the slides. We show where law firms are doing this because they have to understand, hey, and, and Juliet, right, you get this. There's a shared narrative. There needs to be a shared narrative of figuring these things out. EMTs are always using forms of improvisation, right? It's basically about using available resources in real time and divergent thinking to solve a problem. And, and it's, it's social decision-making under uncertainty. And so we show all these other industries that are using this. But then part of my doctorate, we ask people in semi-structured interviews, what is your uh, understanding or definition of improv? And a lot of them just think comedy. And so you see that we've really got to do, and again, this is something you guys have done with the Ready State, our, the job to be done for us is rethinking and, and giving people the language they need to understand about the communication process. So something hopefully really tactical for your audience here. 
generally, if somebody has an interaction that goes wrong, let's just say something goes wrong at any level, there are eight key components that you've got to think about in communication. One, you know, who are the people communicating? What research nerds like to say are the interlocutors, right? What's their age? What's their ethnicity? What's their appearance? You need to give me context. Who are these people? Then there's the message, right? What are we saying? That's the content itself, the pattern of thought, the configuration of ideas. Then there's the medium. Like right now, we're talking over a medium where it's visual. I can see you, you can see me. However, if we're having this conversation over email, that is a more context-poor medium. So there's more likely to be leaks. Now, the person that breaks up with their boyfriend, girlfriend, or what have you, over text, right? The context-poor medium. <laughs> then there's the channel. So right now, the channel is what connects us with that medium. So the channel is Wi-Fi, obviously. The code, which is a sign of shared meaning, symbolism, like you've coached all over internationally. Certain terms are great in certain regions of the world. Certain ones are not. Same thing with nonverbals. Noise. Is there intrusive sounds? Is there something else? Is there inner noise? Is there chatter? Feedback. And then, of course, context itself, which is identified as like, what's the situation and circumstances where this occurred? So, you know, and I can send you guys a graphic if you want to throw it up. I just want some to be tactical for your audience. But what I found is when I've re-engineered aspects of my life where I failed as a communicator, or I see other issues when people are like, hey, man, how do I build buy-in? And I don't know who these people are. I have to ask them about these things. It's almost like their medical history, right? Like I have to say, you have to give me more details about these things. Otherwise, I'm not just prescribing you a tactic. This isn't the question of like, what books do I read? What are you, the Cheshire cat, right? Like help me out with this. So yeah, I mean, you're spot on. And I think the way you guys see this from a systems-based standpoint, but also dynamic systems is, is critical and, and not very common. Back to conscious coaching your book. I have to let you know, I don't know if you know this, but Kelly actually read your book on the airplane on the way home. And then as soon as it was available, he actually bought like 25 copies and would just hand it out to coaches. I didn't know that. And, you know, he does that with one other book, Dune, which is his favorite book. Right. And that's it. It's been those two books, right? Because it's, you know, it's so rare in our field that there's something sort of like relatable, palatable, so applicable to everybody in our field. And I mean, honestly, we're obviously in this health and fitness business, but I mean, we could hand this book to anyone in any field and it would be relevant to them. So anyway, kudos, amazing book. But what I wanted to ask, because I like to nerd out on the business side, you self-published this book, which we've done and is really hard. So I just wanted to hear about that and what you did to make it so successful. And you just went over some sort of little metric that I think is mind-blowing for a self-published book. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I appreciate that. It, it means a lot that you guys have done that too, because the reason I had to go self-publish, and, and I ended up making a podcast for this on our own, mainly for catharsis, um, because you know somebody will say, why didn't you do this in your book? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you have David Spade do the voiceover? And you're like, you don't know how self-publishing works, right? I basically just had a literary agent tell me that nobody would care, didn't understand, you know, strength and conditioning, thought the story of the hospital was going to be too much. So we had gotten turned down and I didn't know what I didn't know. So we're just like, all right, we're going to do this ourselves. I had no newsletter. I, I don't even think I had a, a very large social media following. I mean, it certainly didn't even eclipse. I mean, I, I wasn't even at 20,000 followers or what have you. And so the why was because we got turned down by about everybody. And then how we approached it was one of naivete. I started teasing some things out. I'm a big hip hop fan. And so I think about like when 50 Cent tells his story about, you know, when he started coming out at the time, it, let's say you're, you're a rapper. Well, you would press a mixtape and then you'd do hand to hand. You'd, it would be your mixtape at a bodega or what have you. Well, he stockpiled them. He stockpiled them and then he flooded the market with them and then created kind of this industry wide thing that, that generated some noise. So I'm like, all right, I've got to do this guerrilla style. I'm going to start teasing some things. I'm going to start talking about these things called archetypes um, in the book. I'm going to start teasing some other things and just showing little snippets. And I think maybe it was a combination of that and the fact that I had never really asked anything from my audience before because I didn't have... I mean, I was working for companies that didn't allow you to have a website. I had to go out on my own to release the book. Otherwise, companies that I'd worked for said hey, that's our intellectual property, you know, if you create it here. So it was kind of, I had to do it to escape. And then I just started getting, by including other people in, because I see the zero sum thing, as you guys know, in, in fitness and strength and conditioning. The fact that I wanted to include other people, every gender, every experience level, different parts of the country to contribute to the book, 
right? You're essentially creating corner boys if we stay on the wire, right, vernacular, that they're also going to help promote it. So I think my lack of a mailing list or anything else like somehow worked for me. And then I know the book is no Pulitzer Prize winner, but I'd like to think that it was actually a decent book that got vulnerable. I mean, there weren't a lot of strength coaches around showing an aspect of their life that might be embarrassing, Juliet. Like I was embarrassed for 16 years to say, hey, I had this thing and I don't really know how to talk about it because I know every strength coach is just supposed to be Superman, but I sucked at some things and I had a dark side. And here it is. And and maybe that's just what people needed. I don't know. I, I We'll see how the next book does, <laughs> you know? So that's, <laughs> that's how it all came about. Does that answer your question specifically enough? Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, I, I think the point about not asking your audience for anything up to that point is a big one, right? I think that was part of the special sauce of Supple Leopard too, right? We've been putting out content and then we're like, hey, you know, here's the culmination of that. And people were stoked. So- Well, I think that you guys put out thousands of hours of free content. And so it's yeah. this idea of, I don't know anybody as prolific as you guys at this. And I feel like I let Kelly down because, you know, Kelly, one time you gave me advice. You're like, you need to do kind of what we do, but for the communication stuff on your page. And I'm like, I just, you know, we lack some of those resources right now. And not the resourcefulness, because I know you did everything from your garage and, you know, just a basic phone. But we just find that right now, we feel like it's a little tough to translate on that medium. But, you know, when you think about this, if you guys put out that much content and it's incredible, you helped me through some sticking points of my movement. Imagine how amazing your paid stuff is, right? Imagine how much your like how high quality that is, given how much you guys put into your free content. And people need to realize that there is a reason you need to consider cost versus investment. From a personal, one of the things I don't think I ever told you is that I raced C2 on the national team. And my best friend, Shane Siegel, the best man at our wedding, was my partner. And we were two young males who communicated and he sat in front of me in the canoe, right? With his back to me. And imagine it's very difficult. You're also 22 and your friend has your back to you and you're paddling together 300 days a year, sometimes twice a day. And we imploded our relationship. We absolutely just became enemies. Couldn't talk, couldn't. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And ultimately it was the demise. And realizing now, you know, he and I just went to Africa to paddle the Zambezi together we're still like besties. And we talk about how we were just abjectly poorly prepared and failed by the organization that just did not set up and recognize. I mean, there were tropes like you never make it with your first C2 partner, you know, like. But also just to like interject, you know, it wasn't about their athletic ability or anything that, you know, they, they weren't successful because they couldn't communicate. Right. I mean, wouldn't you say no, that? Yeah, it was, right? Like that was the that was the reason they couldn't be successful as as a couple. Like yeah, we're couple. a couple. I mean, we should have been in therapy. We could, we could have, you know, like even just a hundred things. When I read this, I was like, oh man, this is my first falling on my face experience as an athlete where I couldn't interact appropriately with the partner who is 100% geared in the same direction. I wonder how many times that happens in relationships. You know, I can even speak to Juliet just that I came out of a tradition in my family where I had a dip, absent father, you know, mom's a psychologist. And it took me a minute to realize that Juliet and I were on the same team. You know what I mean? That like I was like, Ju Juliet can see things that I can't see. And she's not trying to hold me down. She's actually, you know, has my best interest. And I wonder how many times we just self-sabotage because you don't have the tools or any formal education. You just stumble into it and you're either good at it or you're not. You know, there has to be more than that. Yeah, with, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, what you're talking about is if you consider the fact that, you know, communicators always fashion what they say and what they do on this ongoing basis in accordance with like their goals or their agendas, right? People in general have agendas. Now that doesn't, agenda, just like the word power and manipulation doesn't necessarily mean something's negative or that somebody's like gonna try to get, it just means we all have wants and needs, right? We all have wants and needs and we gotta figure out how to get those things. And one term that we've started to familiarize our audience with is the, this idea of what you're talking about is kind of micropolitics, if we think of macro politics as things that go on at the governmental level, micro politics is the kind of drama, I'm going to be lazy with my verbiage, that goes on interpersonally, right? And, and we see this like the, the most clear representation for most people of micro politics or political skill at this level happens at the workplace, right? It's this ability to effectively understand people at work and, and what 
what makes them tick. And then I'm trying to figure out how to coincide what I do with that. It's this chess game, this idea of game theory of how social decision-making under uncertainty. And you're right, we don't get trained in it. Just like for some reason, it's a great idea in this country to get rid of you know sex education and physical education. It seems like, all right, so we're not taught financial literacy uh, literacy of power dynamics or communication. We're not supposed to move. Like, Good luck. Right. We're killing it. We're doing a great job. I'll leave it there or I'll, I'll rant, but I want to make sure that, I mean, I acknowledge that. It's, it is hard. And I think that it also hides in plain sight because people don't realize that that's where things break down. I mean, when I say that poor communication has caused wars, that is not an embellishment. And, and yet people just think that like, when you ask them, Oh, how do you rate as a communicator? One to 10. One being not that effective, 10 being pretty effective. Uh, I give myself an eight. Great. What method did you use to objectively evaluate that? (laughs) They're like, and so that's what we're trying to change with some stuff that we're building. So I know you're doing some really interesting doctoral work, which you had mentioned earlier in this conversation, but can you tell us what that is? Because I know that it's cool and our people want to know about it. Yeah. Um, well, like the easiest way to think of it is yeah, we're looking at the role of improv and improving communication, but specifically in the area of power dynamics and how we navigate these things. So again, we're not talking improv as in comedy. We're talking about real life situational planning and iteration. So if we think of this umbrella of what I just mentioned, like micropolitics, the drama we deal with day to day within our interactions, there's three branches of this. There's power dynamics, which I'll define there's influence, and then there's actual persuasion. And a lot of times these terms are used, you know, like most things, like if we think intensity in strength training, we know that in strength and conditioning, that that is relative to the load lifted. Yet a lot of the general public thinks intensity is about how tired you are in a workout. So like we're trying to help people understand that these three abilities, along with an understanding of the differences between them, like that's the stuff that really helps with conducive fit of saying, hey, I found myself in this situation. This is hard, either because this other person or external constraints or what have you, or my own BS. What tactics can I use to get out of that? And then aligning that situation and the context with your awareness of this stuff, that's what creates conducive fit. So to be more clear, like power and, and influence are related concepts, but they're also distinct. If we think of power, if you guys think of power as like, the absolute capacity, and that's the key term, it's a capacity of an individual to influence the behavior of somebody else, right? Which is, you know, that's what leadership is, influencing behavior, right? So power is almost like this potential. And there's many ways that it manifests. You can have positional power. This is all research from two guys named French and Raven. Positional power would be like, under it, there's legitimate power, like, hey, I'm the boss, I'm the director, I'm the president, there's reward power. Hey, Juliet, great job. Here's a bonus. Or, you know, if some form of bribery, if we're going to use it in a negative context. There's coercive power, which that name kind of speaks for itself, right? There's this protection racket. We have people that can protect you. Think of the old school mafia or a lot of what you see in academia, really. And then there's resource power. I control access to this, right? I own this land. I own this intellectual property. I own that. So those are like positional, more formal bases of power. Then there's personal power. And one of the most popular is referent power. It's like, hey, I like you. You're my mentor. I don't want to let you down. Hey, Kelly, you seem really relatable, right? We like you. There's, of course, expert power where we perceive special abilities. It's not related to a title, like legitimate power. It's just this person seems to be an expert at X, Y, and Z. They don't need a title to connote that, right? There's somebody that's 18 years old that's traveled the world you know, 40 times, they don't have a title. It's like, I'm the designated world traveler by Fromm's, right? But like, we know that they're an expert in that. And then there's connections, like who you know. All of that jargon is just to say, based on what power bases you have, and everybody holds power, even the person that's in the most disadvantaged position, that really decides like, all right, now here's how I can influence people. For example, it's hard for me to say, hey, let me use an exchange tactic, Kelly. I'll give you X if you give me Y. Well, if I don't have that resource, if I'm promising something I don't have, that's poor resource power. So uh, all in all is power is the capacity to create change. Influence is actually the tactics you leverage. And then persuasion occurs once you've actually achieved it. You cannot unsuccessfully persuade somebody. So, you know, if if I can't be like, all right, uh, like that's the actual outcome of it. So if you think of it as potential energy, 
right? Kinetic energy, we're actually using it with influence. And then did I decide it? And so we put people in situations and we say, hey, this is the situation. This is the types of power people are leveraging against you. Work your way out of it. And we videotape it and we iterate it and we continue to kind of go into it and teach them in the moment. So I know that's a lot of information. I'll stop there. But I want to give you kind of this all-encompassing idea of, you know, what we're trying to really help people become more literate about. I can't wait to send my kids to this next workshop you have. And I can't wait to go there so I can hold my own against Juliet. Like, so I feel... Hey, Good luck, baby. I don't Good feel, luck. I don't feel... Good luck to you. Normally, if you were like, we're going to talk about communication and feelings, I'd be like, oh, I'm exhausted. Yeah. But what I feel like is, man, I suck at this and I'm going to get better at this and I'm going to be able to take Juliet down. Oh, my God. I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm I, ready. I, and by that, I mean, I mean, we'll have a more okay. successful relationship, baby. Exactly. Okay, so speaking of power dynamics, you and I discussed this when I was on your podcast and I loved it, but I want to sort of turn it around on you a little bit. As you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you own Art of Coaching with your wife. Yep. And I would love to know how you guys make that work, working together as couples, what has been a struggle, what you're working on, and whether there's even an additional layer of pressure given that you run a company teaching people how to communicate. So do you both hold yourself to some <laughs> higher standard than the rest of us mortal humans when you are poor communicators? That's why you should have chose stretching, bro. Yeah, I should have chose stretching 100%. <laughs> yes, all of those. So she came on board about a year and a half ago as our project manager. And she would tell you, right, I had to sign an agreement. She's cool with me discussing all this. Her not having you know, especially because we work remotely and we're so like, it's not like we have you guys down the street, right? Like, so Liz doesn't have somebody to really learn a lot of these things from, right? She had grown up in strength and conditioning and nutrition as well. She did some administrative work for two really successful doctors in LA, living in LA in general as a power dynamic doctorate. But, you know, so there were struggles in terms of, I already had this thing kind of moving in a certain direction and then she'd have to come on and learn. Well, you know, patience, they say, is suffering disguised as a virtue for a reason. You know, I've already been through so many kind of contractors or what have you that I was ready for somebody to just pick up the ball and keep going. So one area that I struggled a lot with was I would have this rush communication style and try to like get her to catch up as fast as possible. But as you guys know, right, as parents, let alone just uh, folks that own a business yourself, people generally don't change or learn until they're thrown into that mess. You think about teenagers, we can tell them everything. We can give them all the stats and figures and all that, what have you, until they've <laughs> learned it, until they've metaphorically tasted their own blood. Like, that's not real to them. So Liz would kind of roll her eyes at me where I'd be like, hey, we're going we're gonna to launch this and get ready. All these five things are going to happen that are bad. And she's like, you're negative. Do, 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 do. Boom, 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 boom. They all happen, right? They all happen. <laughs> our Facebook ad account gets suspended. Somebody throws a Molotov cocktail through our window. That one didn't happen. But all this crazy stuff goes on. And she's like, okay, I get why you're so high strung now. And I'm like, right. <laughs> and so we've had to work through that where she's had to take on some of my traits. She's had to become more of a ball buster and be assertive. I've had to take on her traits. I know you guys don't know her that well, but she's just this like lovely affable, very calm, patient, grinding worker. She walks into a room, she's very easy. But you know, like we had to kind of take on some of those traits. And then to answer your final question, is there more pressure? For sure. I feel like there are plenty of people that would love to see some stuff happen in our marriage or like, you know, we know people, my parents got divorced, now they're getting back together, but we see people get divorced all the time. Well, if her and I were to separate, I just feel like there's people that are like, oh, Mr. Communication, right? Like <laughs> couldn't figure it out. Even if we said, well, hey, no, if that's a decision we made, obviously we communicated well enough to figure out that like, this is the path appropriate for us. It's the same thing if I would have taken some pro sport job and our team went 0-16, they'd be like, so much for conscious coaching. <laughs> Somebody's probably been a lifelong loyalist of your stuff. And guess what? Injuries happen. And so somebody's probably been like, oh, well, you follow the ready stage. Shouldn't you be injury proof? You're just like, those people need to get punched in the nose. But yes, you do feel that pressure if I'm completely honest. Did that address everything that you had mentioned? Yeah. I love hearing about it. I mean, it's, it is. It's, it's an evolving process working with your spouse. Well, and I'll give you some scoop I haven't given elsewhere. Like the thing that we have to be oh, most... Oh. <laughs> the Inside Scoop brought to you by Toyota. By the way, if you're listening to this and you're one of our winners, Brett will record your voicemail. <laughs> you don't want... Just like Carl Castle. You don't want that. Where we've had to be more conscious is just making sure that that energy doesn't spill over into other areas of our relationship because intimacy is really important, right? And 
you have to switch off from colleague mode at some point. And last night we went to see Hamilton live. It can be hard to date your spouse again when there's so many opportunities around you, especially when everything's communication. Our entire world is communication. I'll see a street sign that's got unclear language. And I'm like, we need to use that as a slide. Hard to turn that off. So we're keeping that romantic element is very critical for us because that's the ultimate expression of communication. That's the hardest thing. I love it. You know, one of the things that you spoke of, which I, I really think about a lot, is the need for context. You know, we're seeing right now culturally, there are a lot of businesses who are working remote. And the thing that is working for them is they're coasting on the fumes of culture and interpersonal relationship. And we're seeing people now, I can't prefer to be home. And I, the thing about human beings are that we need to be around, our brains need to be around other brains. Otherwise, it's not a human. The brain does not work by itself. I mean, if you watch that TV show, is it alone? The thing that drives them out of the woods is they're alone. They can't, they can't take it anymore. They actually start to go insane. doesn't matter how successful they are. In COVID, we're seeing completely big shifts in how businesses are working. Are you guys, you and your wife and your team, are you picking up that there are changes now, that some of the sort of process is just naturally eroded because I don't get to interact with my teammates every single day, or I don't have to have a, a difficult conversation, or I can be snide on the email, or I miss a lot of communication. Are you seeing that there's a greater need now, or are we just about to go off a cliff, or am I just making that up? Definitely a greater need, and and it's astute of you like to ask that question in that context, because there's nothing too small for people to do to be more proactive with that. Like we, I mean, we're a, it's me, my wife, and our colleague, Ali Kirshner, as the full-time employees, right? We're one we're two employees short right now and we're, we're hiring and we have contractors or what have you. But think about the absurdity of what I'm about to tell you. We're that small of a company and we've created an internal communication medium hierarchy. Meaning like, let's say there's urgent, time-sensitive, highly complex issues. We know that the first thing is, if possible, we need to have a face-to-face or it needs to be a direct phone call because those are the most context-rich mediums. Second is Marco Polo because we can see each other and not everybody might have an you know an iPhone, so FaceTime, but like we can see those expressions. And then Zoom, right, is, is great for that because then you can record it and you can see each other. If it's for daily team-wide communications, right, general, not necessarily urgent, what have you, but people need to stay up to date, we use a group WhatsApp. We don't use Slack mainly because WhatsApp allows you to do the voice notes, which again, when I can hear your voice and the tone and what have you, that's more context rich. Second then would be Marco Polo and then Asana because that's task-based. If we do team meetings, obviously everybody would prefer those things to be in person, but generally we have to do Zoom and we record that. Now we do require that even though Ali lives in Palo Alto and we're outside the perimeter of Atlanta, quarterly, like Ali's got to make a trip out here or we've all got to go and meet somewhere in person. For business transactions, angry emails, contracts, what have you. Well, you guys know email, E stands for evidence. So email, which is one of the least context-rich mediums, but it's a great record for keeping, that goes there. And then productivity-related in general, like, and, and this is the most important one, aside from uh, the evidence stuff you need, I think, is for that camaraderie, that because we don't get that water cooler talk, what we started doing is doing staff office hours where people can just like, you can turn your Zoom on. There's no formality to it. It's totally low key. We're all just working on something as if we're in the same room together. And we've done stuff where Allie's like, hey, I don't even think you guys have seen my house. I'm going to take you on a walking tour of my house. So we try to find these ways of how can we make sure that we're not slowing down, that we're keeping things personal and professional, and that we can kind of do this the same because we don't have that centralized location. And that's tricky. So I think when people, the most useful thing they can do is say, what's the nature of, of the situation I'm in? How can we mitigate this from a personal and professional standpoint? And are there mediums that are more complementary to that? And I think we're in a place now where we're pretty fortunate enough to have that. Hopefully that gives them like tactical information of how you can use media richness to enhance those kinds of communication strategies. I love that. You had me at Asana. <laughs> Lisa laughed in the background because she knows that I'm obsessed with Asana. Really? One of our good friends was the CEO. He's moved on to a different company. He was the CEO of a, a big ad agency. And his policy at the ad agency was walk call, click. Mm. The first order of business, if you needed to see someone, was to go actually face-to-face. Second, 
And we liked it because it just actually created a different dynamic. People had to move around. Yeah. Like we were like, oh, we this is... We liked the movement part We are like, oh, this but... is great. But, you know, realizing now, I'm kind of, man, I'm like, Jim is a genius. Yeah, genius. Very genius. It's because it, it really does, you know, I, I think the entropy or the laziness, I mean, it's just like, oh, let me just tweet at you, you jerk face. You know, it just it doesn't cost anything. It's just the lazy tribalism, laziness in terms of communication. It is, you know, people bring this up that the original, you know, texting on the phone was because, you know, Steve Jobs felt so uncomfortable in these interpersonal connections. And we do lose some of that. It's, it's interesting to watch my teenagers on you know Snapchat and what they're doing on Snapchat is taking a lot of quick messages or pictures of their faces. And it's like the kids intuitively know that having some representation of your noggin in the thing is letting someone know or, or communicating. It's almost more powerful than, you know, what's up? You up? You know? So So I have a question which is sort of COVID related and it's sort of a I, I think you would say it's a communication thing. But one thing that has been really awkward for me in COVID is like the physical interaction when you meet and say hello to people, but you can't like physically communicate, like shaking hands, fist bumping feels weird. You know, I'm kind of a hugger, but I think you can't really hug anymore in the office. Like that's not really okay I, I as a form of I can't hug okay as with me, Julia. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, like it's created this thing where it's like, we used to have these sort of like understood societal ways of like physical communication upon meeting someone or seeing someone and all that went out the window in COVID and now we're all doing these weird waves and not sure and it creates this weird, I, I don't know, I just wanted to see what you thought about that and yeah, well, whether you had the same experience. Well, one, you know, what you're speaking to is, is super relevant because there's a ton of research right now going on in terms of just COVID in general of looking at how message tailoring is done around what we should and should not be doing with COVID. I mean, you think about the way we we send our messaging about even, and, and this, there's no political thing behind this, right? But like whether people get vaccinated or not, or this or that, like, could our messaging be better, right? Could our messaging of these things, knowing that certain nations are more individualist, certain nations are more collectivist, and, and also looking at something about like, would we be more successful if we spoke to this thing as like an external, uh, well, well, we'll save that. But yes, the, in terms of what you're mentioning all contributes to social atrophy. We don't even know what's okay anymore. And, and if you think of these, like we have these seven meta categories that we kind of score on at our workshop. And, and what you mentioned is a couple of them, but like, so we have communication in general, which of course is what people typically think of verbal, nonverbal, but it's way deeper than that. Nonverbal, and you mentioned it, you're a hugger. That's haptics right? That's haptics. Like there's physical touch. There's proxemics. How much spacing do I have when I'm talking to somebody? There's kinesics. So that's your typical kind of view of nonverbal, right? These micro expressions. What am I doing with my face? Uh, there's aesthetics. What we wear and how we wear it is even a form of communication. You know, then we have this negotiation meta category. That's what influence tactics are we using? How much do we use self-disclosure and empathy? But aside from getting all into these, because I don't want to assume you guys are that like interested in that, it, it is something that, again, if we don't practice this, if we don't have some kind of reorientation strategy, and I think people laugh at that. I think some people think like they really aren't going to need it. But I mean, you see it all the time. I mean, people are awkward in general. I, I'm from the Midwest. I still kind of lose my shit when I hold open the door for somebody, which I'm happy to do. I don't do that for a thank you, but it does weird me out when somebody doesn't say thank you, right? Like, And so I think just people not knowing what's okay anymore, because of overarching uh, narratives that are going on with certain cultural things, because of COVID, because we're out of practice, because we're not self-aware. People don't videotape their interactions. Again, it's just like, you think you're good at communication? Great. Why? Just because of the better than average effect? Um, because you think that it's something you should be good at, so you rank yourself as highly skilled at it? Um, so I, I, I think that the further we get away... Juliet, from even acknowledging the importance of those little things, like the the little micro interactions we have daily, the bigger systemic issues we have, because this is an individual issue and a systemic issue, much like what you guys do with your nonprofit, much like what you guys do with your business. It is so big and, and it starts with individual movements and those smaller interactions. Did, that, did I understand your question correctly? Yeah, that's, yeah, that, yeah. It, reminds, yes. it reminds me of that sort of case study that when air conditioning was invented, we started to see change in the dynamics of the neighborhood because people didn't sit on the deck 
to cool off in the evening and communicate. One example, they were able to stay inside and suddenly we had changed sort of the nature of what the neighborhood looked like and how neighbors interacted because they weren't forced to. Well, and you're onto something there. Like when part of our framework is there's four key things meta-wise that drive human behavior. There's of course our drives. Are we driven to achieve? Are we driven by a sense of security, right? We know loss aversion, unity. Do we like being around other people? There's these subconscious influencers of behavior. The other thing is environment. Environment is a tremendous dictator of behavior. And you guys think of what you do with uh, the stand-up desks and what have you. And obviously, if there's stairs next to the escalator, I mean, still a lot of people don't take them, but they're definitely more likely to, right? We can engineer an environment. Vegas is the best example of how they do casinos and what have you with, you know, there's no windows, there's no clocks. The floor is bright red because one of the most powerful human emotions is disgust. And imagine the, the spilled drinks and everything that's happened there. So we have drives, environment. Then we have social factors. How are our friends behaving? What are people in our neighborhood doing, Kelly, as you just alluded to, right? Like there's this idea we hear about looting during Hurricane Katrina. Oh my God, they must all be bad people. Uh-uh. Time out. There's so you can't look at things black and white like that. We need to get back to being a gray area society of understanding that there's complexity. Social factors, how our friends act, how other people act. We are very much influenced by how other people behave. And then finally is timing. Everybody always talks about pathos, ethos, and logos with Aristotle. Well, there's that other aspect, Kairos. Everybody's coachable, but just not on your time. And the timing of your message and all these things really <laughs> matter. And so you hit on a huge one there with environment that also contributes to social atrophy. Brett is one of the people who reaches out to me all the time, just like, hey, what's going on? And we get on the phone and this is what our conversation sounds like, except we're both like madmen. If you just dropped in, you would be like, who are these two right. guys? He's like, leave me alone. I have Russell Branson on line three. I'm like, all right, I'll send you an emoji later. I don't know what to do. <laughs> you know, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this only because Lisa's on here and she likes to make fun of me. But in all of these like text, email, communication forms. I'm kind of into the emoji and the exclamation Gives point. Context. And I am More sure context. people can easily make fun of me, including Lisa, who does. But I do it because I'm always like, I want to make sure my tone, like I can't, I feel like I can't say what I'm trying to say, the right tone without having these external things, which look kind of dumb and seem sort of like too poppy. But I just want to make sure like that my tone has come across so eggplant, eggplant, eggplant. You know, eggplant, eggplant. What is today's hieroglyphs? You know. The, yeah. So that's all. I I don't know. I just that was more like a therapy session for me. You know what it makes um, me think of than anything else. There was really no question. We have there. you're invited to come have Thanksgiving with us, not Thanksgiving, Halloween with us. Anytime <laughs> that, that I'm playing to the back of the Lisa's room. Lisa's like I'm editing that. So out. we have a huge. Uh, Halloween party. And this year, the theme is going to be The Expanse, which is one of my favorite sci-fi book series, fantasy series on, on um, I forget what, is it on Amazon? I've even gone so far as become friends with the greatest character who looks a little bit like you and is in Atlanta. And one of the things that happens is, and I've thought about this a lot, is that they're in space and they've grown up in space and they've created a whole bunch of hand signs to go along with the language that they're using because you can't see all the context and all the facial features. And I feel like we almost need a secondary language to help us understand what's happening so that you can actually know what people are thinking and saying. I think we are doing a crap job of being better communicators right now. And man, it's something that Juliet and I talk about a lot and you are really stepping into the whole, this thing that you're working on is for me the most important thing that's come out of strength and conditioning in a decade. That's how important this is. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I appreciate it. We're trying to take it further than that. And, and hopefully, you know, the next book, which we've learned is going to be devoid of a lot of strength and conditioning language because it really, you know, people will... Let me, let me clarify. I don't mean that this is a strength and conditioning thing, but it's come out of strength oh, and conditioning. No. This is the transference of what we're learning in sport and human performance as a way of actually transforming society. This is, if let me just be clear to everyone, follow the art of coaching, check out what Brett's talking about. It is, it will transform how you interact with your family and teams and friends. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And I wanna just, one other thing that you said was you and Juliet both alluded to that was genius there is, and Juliet, you need to hear this because I don't want you to edit out the emoji thing, right? Like they are nonverbal cues with like rich emotional signals, right? And so like nerd talk, right? They talk about like the semantic function of an emoji. 
is that, you know, they're, they're able to help people understand the overall meaning of a message in a more concise way. And conciseness is one more, you know, smaller category under that verbal piece that, that people have to be scored on. And by the way, that's also contextual, right? Because two guys talking shit in Southie, right? An academic might not be like, oh yeah, you guys are good communicators, but they're not going to consider that academic, no matter how fanciful the word choice as a great communicator, because it's all context latent. And, and it goes into what you said as well, you know, Kelly, these, there are all these nuances to how we express things. But again, I just urge people to, to consider nobody's saying you're broken. Nobody's saying that like you, you're this incomplete version of yourself. Nobody's trying to guilt you into anything. We're just saying that like literally you can't compete at the highest level of what you do if you don't communicate well. And I use the term compete loosely. I'm saying whether like you should just be competitive with yourself to want to be better as a communicator. It steers relationships and relationships steer everything else. I mean, how many people are there in history that were brilliant, brilliant, but because of lack of a social, like social and emotional intelligence were worthless. And so like those things never change the world. I shouldn't say they're worthless. They never change the world. And it's just, I think it's time. And I hope it's time for people to take a different look at this because I think we have talked about this in, in, in ways that I want to honor those other authors, but we, ju- we just have to get over this idea of whether the, the, it's that or power dynamics or manipulation and influence. These things are not bad. They're not Machiavellian. It's just, we don't know how to do them well. And there's ever a time in human history, we need to learn it when there's more polarization than ever, more politicization than ever, more a lack of self-awareness than ever, it's now. So I appreciate you guys even like giving me a chance to express that and uh, not treating me or my work like I'm some kind of peon just being like, hey, this is special. Wait a minute, um, did, wait. did you know that we were cruising towards a gigantic pandemic and hyperpolitization? I mean, you really are at the right place at the right time. So you have mentioned your upcoming book, Obviously, that's very big and we know a massive amount of work. But in addition to that, what else are you looking forward to? What's next? What's next for you, Art of Coaching, your team? What are you looking forward to? I think, um, you know, when we created these workshops, it was pre-pandemic. And so the pandemic slowed those down, obviously, because the world closed down. Uh, We've just ran, I I think, our 17th or 18th one, not including like in-services we'll do for businesses or what have you. And so we'll wrap up, you know, the first kind of round or iterations of level one here in December. And then working on level two, right? This idea of, you know, we have to meet the market where it's at. So it's unfortunate where like there's so much content that we wanted it to be a three-day event, but we've had to fit level one into two days because one, we're selling people something they think they're already good at. We're also selling something that is pretty hard. And we have to try to do that in a weekend because we know few people can get away from work. It's not like Kelly, when I, you know, when I worked for Athletes Performance, where people would spend four days out there, no problem, because they can work out, they can sit in a hot tub, cold tub, they're in Phoenix, right? They love doing those things. Like we're not allowing, you know, people to do the thing that they love to do most at these workshops, which is work out. You've got to create that euphoric moment through something else. So level two, we're ready to sink our teeth into that. The book, I'm seven chapters into it. Of course, when it goes out is not just my call. It depends on, does a publisher pick it up? Are they going to delay it? Are they going to try to neuter it? You know, finding the right fit there. But I think just continuing to revamp experiential learning because that's that's one thing we didn't have the time to get into and hopefully we covered enough that people got value. But a key part of this is in lieu of there not being skills training on this in schools, we've got to change post-COVID the way we do con ed and professional development in general. I mean, this stuff isn't experiential. You know, you got to get up and learn and interact with material and fail and review it and then have some kind of like abstract conceptualization of what would I do different? Like if you and Kelly came, right? What you would see is we'd put you in a role-playing exercise. You'd evaluate yourself to account for egocentric bias, which we all have. Your peers would evaluate you on these, you know, some aspect of these 21 meta and subcategories. And then they get together in groups because you might have somebody that's like, well, I gave Kelly a one on this and it doesn't matter for the context of this discussion. Somebody else might say, well, I gave a three. And if one person's from one part of the world, another person's from another part of the world, these discussions of how they interpret and perceive successful interaction create not a perfect score, because that's not what we want. It's not like, oh, you get a 21, you're a perfect communicator. It's the perceptual gap. If you always think you're ones and everybody else is telling you you're twos and threes or vice versa, that shows you something to be aware of. You know, but having these tough discussions and these drop zone based interactions that are very tactical and then going back and refining and saying, Kelly, now try this tactic. Juliet, why don't you try leveraging this power base? Now we're going to shrink the time. Now we're going to do it like an Oklahoma drill where we're going to circle around 
go into this moment and try to fire Kelly up in 15 different ways within this context. And let's see people how they do under heat. But I, I just think that the days of large, massive auditorium classroom-based instruction for Con Ed, is, it'll always be there because there's too much money to be made. But I think people are going to realize that that's not really the way to go. You've got to be more hands-on for these skills that are going to lead us into an uncertain future. Amen. And that's actually uh, a perfect place to wrap it up. So tell us where people can find you on the interwebs and otherwise. Artofcoaching.com, not the, right? Just artofcoaching.com. I've learned to give that instead of my name because people, you know, they're like Bartholomew, what the hell? Or at coach underscore Brett B. But artofcoaching.com is the easiest thing you can do. The book, my first book, Conscious Coaching, available worldwide on, on Amazon. And thank you guys again for, for giving it the time. And, you know, we're just a small business trying to kind of get to the next tier. And you guys have been a huge inspiration for that. So I appreciate you. Thanks, Brett. You are great. Thanks, boy. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You've got it. You better stop it.